This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, I cannot believe that this is the 30th episode of Self Work. I'm so excited to be with you today. I'm Dr. Margaret. I'm a clinical psychologist in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been practicing over 25 years. And I started to podcast because I wanted one to extend the walls of my practice to other people and perhaps pass on some of the wisdom that I've learned through the years from my own patients. But I also want to start a conversation and be part of a conversation about mental health. Too many of us believe there's some kind of stigma about going to therapy or talking about mental illness or simply emotional and mental struggles that we have. I'm here to not only talk about some of my own, but to help guide you through what I know about change and the processes of our minds and our hearts. So welcome. Today we're going to be talking about criticism. (laughs) I told my husband what this podcast was about and he immediately said that he gives criticism very well. And that's all he said. (laughs) But how do you give it well and then how do you receive it well? There's the distinction, of course, between constructive criticism and destructive criticism, but I think sometimes the criticism gets lumped into just one batch. What one person may think is constructive, another may not. And certainly, in relationships, we have to talk about things that we're disappointed about. We're going to talk about the book, How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It, a book that many people like, (laughs) and how the authors of that book describe the dynamic about how criticism, disappointment can be handled and tolerated in a relationship where it actually helps it grow. And then I've compiled a list of 10 things. Again, I'm always talking about what you can do about it, how to get out of a rut where criticism is happening, but nothing's being learned. Then fourth today, I'll read an email from a listener about approaching 40 and confronting painful emotions. Really, we'll probably be talking about any marker, any birthday, any anniversary, something like that, that makes you sit and think about your life, where it is, where it's going, and where you've been. So thanks for joining me today, and we'll dig right in. For some reason, the last couple of years, I've really been criticizing my husband's driving. He'll slow down to look at something, and I start maybe waving my hand out of the side window as if I'm the queen, sarcastically suggesting that he's creeping along at parade pace, or we're speeding along the expressway, and I don't think he sees something in front of us, and out pops, do you see that truck slowing down? It's not overt criticism, but the message is clear. I don't think he's doing a great job. And actually, my husband is a wonderful driver. It's not him at all. I've got to stop it. I'm being too critical. Whether it's my own issues with control, impatience, mortality, or whatever, I need to get a grip on it. This is something that all couples have to do, if indeed we're going to have decent relationships. And actually, not just couples, parents and children, friends, co-workers, how you deliver 
a message of criticism and how you receive criticism is very important to your maturity. And frankly, most of us don't do it very well. I talked about anger in episode 28, but handling criticism is a little bit different because it doesn't always make us angry. We can feel shame from criticism. It may bring up things that are very unresolved for you. We can hide that shame or that anger or disappointment, whatever we're feeling, through being sarcastic, taking pot shots. We can blurt out criticism without even thinking about it. You just grow more and more resentful, or you fly into rages. You bring up things from the past. You know, someone criticizes and you say, well, just last week, you blah, 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 as if one wrong makes a right. And yet, when you think about it, why is this criticism different when we receive it from someone we love than getting difficult feedback from other people? For example, your supervisor calls you in and says that he or she's noticed that you're not being as focused at work. They ask you to step up your production. Although this isn't pleasant, the structure's in place for that kind of feedback to occur. Or your child's teacher notes that homework isn't being turned in and she recommends you check into it, try to discover what's happening behind the scenes. You count on her to give you this kind of feedback to inform you of your child's progress. Again, you realize the structure of that relationship. She has information that is helpful for you to know. If she didn't tell you, you'd probably be more disappointed than if she did. From my perspective, what makes criticism or negative feedback, however you want to put it, difficult feedback, why it's so much harder in a relationship where there's love and caring is because of the complication of the structure of the relationship. We are lovers, we're parents, we're financial partners, we're homeowners, we're best friends, we're domestic partners, meaning who does all the stuff around the house. You name it, your lives are completely entangled. Because of that, perceived criticism is harder to take because of that very entanglement. For example, if your partner is trying to talk to you or a friend is trying to talk to you about your relationship in the same way that the supervisor was and said something like, hey, honey, I don't feel like you're very focused on us lately, and I really need that from you. How would you respond to that? It's very similar feedback, but now from someone you love. Or let's take the feedback from the teacher. What if your partner said, or again, a friend, I know you're busy, but it seems like you're not paying attention to what's going on with the kids. How would you receive that? One of the problems is, obviously, that our lives are so entangled that if someone gives us negative feedback about the way we handle money, for example, we're not just talking about our financial relationship, then all of a sudden, everything else resonates. All the other ways we connect could be damaged or hurt in some ways what we fear. So instead of reacting reasonably and rationally, we say something like, what do you mean? I swear I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. Do you know how hard I've been working? Again, to the question of focus. And then about helping out around the house, we tend to say things like, well, if you would help out more with stuff around the house, maybe I'd have time to be with the kids more. There's only 24 hours in a day, right? I know I've said stuff like that for sure. And sometimes, even if it's not actually said, the thought is still there. But think about all those partnerships. Conflict or stated disappointment, stated criticism, even if constructive, that conflict can shake all those realms at once. 
We can withdraw, hold a grudge, whatever we do. But instead, if we can hear it constructively, if we can hear it non-defensively, then it can be very helpful. Because let's face it, everybody makes mistakes. And having someone who loves you pointed out to you can be very helpful. Doctors Pat Love and Steve Snozny wrote a book, I believe it's wonderful. It's called How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. In fact, I've given it to some couples and they'll come back into therapy and say, you know, we've read the book and we're really doing great now. (laughs) And they don't come back. So, but that's a good thing. But their research suggests that men feel actual failure when they hear disappointment or criticism from their partner and then withdraw. When that occurs, women feel more lonely and become more frustrated and disappointed or angry. That cycle is repeated over and over and over. What men need is affirmation that they're a good parent, a good partner, a good provider. And women tend to need connection. They fear loneliness. They need to feel known. So the trick in talking about disappointment or, again, negative criticism takes these basic needs into account. The authors point out that women can more intentionally and respectfully approach their male partners with what they're unhappy about. For example, a woman said in my office, you know, I suddenly realized that when I asked my husband to do the dishes, I was using this tone, insinuating he never did the dishes. And that's not true. I wouldn't do that to anyone else. Why do I do that to him? Now, it's not always, of course, a woman criticizing a guy. I don't want to get caught up in gender language, and certainly I'm cognizant that I'm using a man and a woman. These dynamics can actually occur between partners of the same sex. But the book, How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It, it's written about gender differences. It focuses mostly on gender differences. So what do the authors say that men can do? They suggest that they look for more opportunities to connect with the women in their life. I had a male patient say just a couple of months ago, I realized I wasn't all in. I used to be, but I felt like it was never enough. And you know, the past year, it hasn't been enough. I don't give like I did at first. And so these kinds of realizations of tone of voice or not being totally committed, not giving your all, they're key to making things better between the two of you, where you can talk about your disappointments, your frustrations, you can quote-unquote, criticize, and you're not tearing down the relationship, you're actually building the intimacy in a relationship. But I've certainly dealt with many, many couples who have dug this incredible trench of criticism. One cannot say anything without the other saying, that's wrong, that's a stupid thing to think, you shouldn't feel that way, and on and on and on. So how do you get out of a critical rut, of fights about who's right and wrong. There are 10 things that I've thought about today. I'm sure there are other ways, but these are the 10 that I could think about for this particular podcast. Number one, write out what you're trying to talk about and then give your partner time to answer in writing as well. It can really decrease defensiveness. And you want to do this, especially with topics that generally fall in the who's right and who's wrong discussion. I found that writing about what you're disappointed about or what you would like to constructively criticize your partner about, if you write it out, you are more likely to choose your words carefully 
and they're more likely to not jump to conclusions. Then they can take the time, and usually I have couples say, okay, let's decide on a time you're going to get back with this, 24 hours, 48 hours, and then they write out the response to you. It slows things down and gives you both a chance to be your best selves. Number two is to start a gratitude journal or a chalkboard, anything that can be seen by both of you. You'll be building what the marriage researcher John Gottman calls a love bank. You're investing in the relationship in a positive way so that you can balance out discussions of what you don't like. Number three is to realize that whatever you're criticizing or wanting to criticize may just be the flip side or the underbelly of something that you love about your partner. For example, let's say they struggle with spending too much money and you find that you have to every now and then check on it and say, you know, I'd appreciate it if we could talk about this again. I think it may be slipping up on you. Well, obviously that's a disappointment, but my guess is that there's something about perhaps they're generous, perhaps they want to do things for others, or they're very playful. Something about their personality resides in that same trait that you're disappointed in, if you see what I mean. It's the front and back of the same personality trait. Maybe playful people aren't quite as good with money because (laughs) they don't think through things in a more mature fashion, but they sure can play, and maybe that's what you are attracted to. Number four is a big one. You've got to take responsibility for your own defensiveness. Know what your triggers are. What insecurities do you have that might make you a bit touchy on one subject or another? As I was thinking about something recently that I'm struggling with a bit, I've been gaining a little weight and struggling with feeling older. And so when my husband kids me, for example, in the morning, he has this joke about you're dressing like a teenager or something like that, which he means as a compliment, actually. But, you know, then I wonder and I get insecure about, am I trying to look too young? And that's all me. It's not him. He's just teasing. It's my own defensiveness, my own vulnerability that makes me very sensitive, probably overly sensitive to comments like that. So we've all got to take responsibility for that defensiveness. Now, I want to be quick to say that obviously I'm not talking about verbal abuse. That is unacceptable in any way. Number five is to start taking stock of just how often you make statements that are critical of the other one. You might be shocked. I had a couple one time whose major complaints about each other were how critical they were. So I inserted the idea that, and they agreed to it, that they had to ask permission to be critical of the other one. And if the permission was not given, they couldn't say the comment. Well, they came back laughing, thinking, oh my gosh, we didn't realize how much we were criticizing one another. And if that's the case, what's really going on with that? Is it a control issue? Are you mad about something that you're not revealing? Why are you being so critical? Number six is to realize your children are listening to you. I'll never forget when I was standing in the kitchen years ago, I was muttering something under my breath about my husband. I was mad at him. And my then maybe eight or nine-year-old son walked up to me and said, Mom, you can't talk about Dad like that. And he was right. I was so embarrassed. I thanked him for telling me that and said, You know what? You're right, Rob. I shouldn't have done that. So they're learning 
what's okay communication by listening to you. Number seven is to spend a little time thinking about how criticism was handled in the family you grew up in. And perhaps are you mimicking a parent in a good way or a bad way? You were that child and you were listening in to grandparents, to aunts and uncles, to parents. What did you learn? And is that the way you really want to handle your life? Or is there another way? Then that goes into number eight, to challenge yourself to take responsibility for your part of the problem and look at yourself honestly. I'm always asking people, what do you have control of? And the major answer is myself, and that's really it. So if you begin changing and stopping yourself from being critical rather than focusing on another, then you can get control of yourself and you'll feel better. Often, your partner will respond, even if he or she doesn't quite realize what you're doing. It's like the parenting technique of catching your children being good. You could do the same thing with a partner or a friend. Number nine is big. Just don't use the words always and never and use I statements. Instead of saying, you never listen to the kids or you always interrupt the kids. This is what you say. I've noticed that when you talk to the kids, you sometimes struggle to listen to their answers. From my perspective, you tend to interrupt a little. Do you feel that you do that? Or can you help me understand what's going on? Now, I know I'm a therapist, right? <laughs> and I don't want things to sound so psychology-y as I would say. that you go, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. But am I really going to be able to say that in the moment? And you'd use your own words, obviously. You can if you practice. It takes realizing that when you say always and never, you are cutting off the conversation. You are not allowing your partner to have their own perspective and basically implying that your perspective is the only one. If they always or never do it, then so of course it sets up an argument. Well, that's not true. Just last month I or whatever. So you're missing the point by using language like that. And you're pointing your finger, you, 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 rather than using I statements. I notice. I wonder. I was thinking. Whatever. And the last one is you ask if your partner is in a place to hear about something you'd like to suggest before you ever say it. Again, that's kind of the technique that I used with the couple I talked about a few minutes ago. If they say, yes, sure, I'm in a good spot, I can hear it, then they're giving you permission to state your mind. And then it's your job to be kind, to use kind language and non-blaming language so that they have a much better chance of being able to receive what you're thinking without defensiveness. It made me think of that country song that I think won all kinds of awards last year, Always Be Humble and Kind. Yeah, definitely a basic message we all need to incorporate. So here's today's email from a listener. I just came upon your podcast and they're speaking to my heart. I love your real life attitude and humor. Thanks so much for sharing your life lessons and expertise online for us to listen to anywhere. I listen to and from work. I live about 30 miles away in a suburb. I have two growing teenage boys and I'm married 20 years this August. I just recently turned 40 and boy, what a life assessment I'm doing now. 
depression, anxiety, guilt, grief, you name it, I've got it. And I'm learning how to deal with it. Thanks again for sharing. Well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. I couldn't do what I do all day long without laughing. Humor to me and laughter is so important in trying to talk about good mental health. So if I've made you smile or laugh, that makes me happy. But I picked this email because she's talking about turning 40, which is often an age that can trigger all kinds of feelings in people and maybe a time for many to assess their lives. I remember being 40 and I developed a mantra at the time, which was, if not now, when? (laughs) I certainly had things to feel guilty about, even to feel shame for. But by 40, I had worked a lot of that out. But not everybody does. It's important to not carry what a lot of people call baggage around with you year after year after year after year. And as far as depression and anxiety goes, it's unusual for it to develop in your 40s, but it can. Generally speaking, mental illnesses tend to develop from the late teenage years to the middle of your 20s. But it certainly doesn't mean that you can't develop it or be dealing with it at the age of 40, especially if it's chronic depression, recurrent depression. But it's never too late, never, never too late to look at mental illness and mental health problems and decide, you know, I want the rest of my life to look different than this. I need to try a new medication. I need to exercise. I need to go to therapy. I need to read books. I need to meditate. I need to focus on my important relationships. I need to engage. I need to connect. All of those things can really help with mental illness, no matter what your age. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast today. Again, number 30. I'd love it if you'd give me a rating, a review on iTunes. And given what I talked about today, if you have some constructive criticism for me and you don't say always or never, then I'd be more than happy to read it. So far, the reviews have been very nice, and that, of course, feels good. And I'd love to hear what else you have to say. Too short, too long. I would like different topics, whatever it is. Or you can email me that at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. Those emails are confidential, and I'm getting more and more from you. I love hearing about who you are, why you listen, what you like, what you might like me to add, whatever. My website, where I blog weekly, is drmargaretrutherford.com. And if you subscribe there, you'll get my blog posts as well as each podcast, because, of course, I launch them there. I also have a Facebook page, Dr. Margaret Rutherford on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, Dr. Underscore Margaret. And I just love to connect with you any way that's possible. I also have a new book on Amazon called Marriage is Not for Chickens. I talked about that in episode 29. In fact, I actually read it. But I think it's a great little book to give to someone who's getting engaged, getting married, having an anniversary, or simply to let your own partner know how much you appreciate them being in your life. So that's Marriage is Not for Chickens. Thanks again for being here today. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.